Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to welcome you to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today is about COVID. What is real, what is not. The truths and the lies. And how all of this unfolded. The person best able to explain this with full documentation. And if you're watching this by going to prn.live, scrolling down to archives and scrolling down to Gary and his show notes, you'll see Dr. David Martin. Dr. Martin is probably the only person that I'm aware of who has been able to go back and with methodical research show a timeline of the patented viruses and vaccines that we did not have before. And even before we knew that there was a scourge of COVID uh, that we already had, vaccine research being done. Dr. Martin's the one who brought all that to our attention. He is a scholar in his field. You're going to see him and hear him in a moment uh, in Europe at the uh, Rudolf Steiner uh, group, and he is lecturing. This will be part one of a two-part series. Now, what's important is this. Just yesterday on my radio program, I broadcast the idea that we now have brand new information. Two leading professors of virology in Tokyo have come forward and said that they have done all this research on the genetic sequencing, the genes in, of COVID and the vaccines and the variants. And they have found that virtually all of the variants, all of them, uh, the Omicron, et cetera, Delta, were human-made, meaning they were made in a laboratory. We're also finding out that there, they were cleaved into this, uh, this genetically engineered uh, virus were Kroshoff-Jacobs disease or mad cow disease. And uh, doctor, the doctor and his team at the Pasteur Institute uh, Dr. Luc Montagnier, who won the Nobel Prize along with his team for discovering the HIV virus, they found the HIV virus in the, uh, in the COVID uh, virus, which means that that did not come from nature. It did not come from a bat in a, in a market, meat market. All that was simply lies that were told. But we believe the lies because we had no one showing otherwise. The group of scientists who originally were told, uh-oh, you know, the, the virus is out in Wuhan, well, they first said that it probably came from a laboratory. After all, Anthony Fauci, Collins U.S. Public Health Service, were funding by millions of dollars. University of North Carolina, Dr. Barrick, and the Wuhan lab to do this exact same uh, gain-of-function research. But don't be deceived. Gain-of-function research is actually biological weapons research. And the Communist Party's Defense Department was heavily engaged in gain-of-function research that we were also funding. 
None of this was known at the time. Subsequent to that, we now have a whole timeline of the lies, the cover-ups, the, uh, the people saying, oh, this had to have come you know, from uh, nature. And then we find out that they had received huge grants of money. Well, you know, a lot of money buys you, buys you allegiance, and it did. We were betrayed. The whole house of cards is now crumbling. Every day, new studies are coming out showing all the unnecessary deaths, the excessive deaths, all the different things that the manufacturers of these vaccines knew at the beginning and hid from us. With the FDA's uh, cooperation, they wanted to hide all the documentation of its adverse side effects for 75 years. But now they've been forced to share this. And we're working on all this now. And I give this as an introduction because everything that David Martin is saying, he's actually showing you the proof behind him on the screen. Now let's go to Dr. David Martin. So a very, well, an extremely warm evening to everybody and a, and a very warm welcome. Um, I think it's possible that David Martin needs no introduction for many people, but um, on behalf of the um, bold, organizing, independent group that have put on this evening, invited David to come, I've just been asked to say a few words in introduction. My name's Richard Ramsbotham. Um, I was one, it'd be interesting how many others in the room, who was first exposed to David Martin on Mickey Willis's Plandemic 2 movie, Indoctrination. And um, by that stage, I think wherever one was in, in the whole struggle of the, those first years, 2020, 2021, wherever one was, something very extreme was happening even if by some strange reason you thought it was okay. Um, <laughs> whatever was going on, it was not normal, and they didn't want it to be normal either. But um, So one was awake to many things, and I think today, I think everybody is a researcher. We have to be. It, wherever it comes to you, things come. And it's like, what is that? Is that true? Is that, what, what's that? What's the background to that? That's what's asked of all of us. And so, certainly for myself, I'm sure for many of you, we'd looked into many things. And personally, as, as another illustrious member of the audience, Heiko Schoening, had done a lot of work looking back at the time of 9-11 and the anthrax um, situation that happened a month later, which had a whole background to it. Had been looking into that. What was happening? What, what, what was going on with all these vaccinations? And then this indoctrination movie came out. And I remember Mickey Willis talking, it was quite gentle, and suddenly David Martin appeared. And, and it was a, a kind of shock, a pretty wonderful shock, but a shock. Because it was someone with the phenomena. Yeah? As you well know, people are accused today of just having theories, you know, which is a, which is a nonsense. You know, for, for anyone connected with this gentleman, Rudolf Steiner, it's a nonsense to talk about theories. Someone who talked about knowledge, as, as you, sir, talked about the overcoming of knowledge and belief. Yeah, belief is not enough anymore. And this gentleman is very strong on that. We have to go further. We can look into world events. We can look into the way evil works in the world. We can look into lots of things and research it. Don't talk to us just about theories. And David Martin brought these phenomena about, about um, 
bioweapons, if I may just call it gently, I'm sure you'll share more. One after the other after the other. That was the shock. Um, it's like, okay, we're on a different ground now because of this. So personally, I just share my deep gratitude to you. And, and uh, you know, I could say a lot more. He has a remarkable background. Really, if you read, perhaps I won't go through it, but if you read David's accomplishments online, one also marvels at how you manage to you know, have such a range of work and, and, uh, behind you. Perhaps um, just read something because it's also surprising for us. He's also served as, as an advisor to numerous central banks, global economic forums, the World Bank, and international finance corporation and national governments. So David's worked on a scale, certainly some of us is... We don't know at all. Um, and I think, I think that's about it. We're just greatly looking forward to the evening, and we're all here and ready to engage and, and ask you questions afterwards. I come from a very long line of ministers and bishops in the Anabaptist tradition. And if you don't know anything about that tradition, you don't know that we, um, we historically start in Genesis on a Sunday and end in Revelation, and we cover every single book between end to end, which I will not do tonight. <laughs> but I do set my stopwatch just in case the minister in me kicks in. Um, I find it particularly interesting that we have Cash Diner on the wall, and, and I re- the reason for that is because I think many of us have lost our way with respect to the notion that in many respects, the challenge we face today is a challenge that is in large part uh, an outgrowth of our failure to understand that there are not experts. There are individuals who have developed very precise perspective but that doesn't necessarily make them an expert. That simply means that they have a very specific perspective. And one of the mistakes that we've made, and one of the mistakes that my wife, Kim, who's sitting in the the row here, and I would love for you to all acknowledge the amazing work that she's done to stand beside me throughout the last several years on the mission that we're on. Kim, if you would stand up. One of, one of the things that Kim has said repeatedly is that one of the biggest mistakes we've made over the last probably several thousand years is we believe that if people look up to someone on a stage, somehow or another that imputes some elevated perspective or elevated knowledge. And, and in keeping with the tradition of the Anabaptist movement from which my family lineage comes, I thought that it would be appropriate to actually not be on a stage tonight. And the reason for that is because this should be a conversation. I'm going to be directly delivering exceptionally problematic information to a room full of people where my intention is not to convince you of a thing, not to persuade you of a thing at all. My, my intent is to lay out a series of observations and then engage in a conversation, this Q&A that allows us to say, if this perspective that we now have is the case, what is our response? What is the, 
the way in which we take that information and apply it. Because information for its own sake is just that. It's just information. But until we actually can figure out how do we take that information and bring it to application, then we don't have knowledge. Then we don't have wisdom. All we have is facts. And facts aren't going to help us. I've said very frequently, I've never met a fact that can overwhelm a belief. I think I'm in good company. Okay? And and quite tragically, I found that in the United States, at least, many of the people who deeply appreciated and respected the tradition of Steiner happened to be the first ones to line their children up to get jabbed which I found to be an enormously puzzling and actually quite tragic indictment on what happens when we elevate an expert but fail to understand the spirit from which the expertise arose. I can absolutely and unequivocally guarantee you that if he was with us right now, he would not be saying, line up your kids and get them genetically modified. (laughs) That would not be the recommendation. However many of the people who advanced the cause for which Steiner is most known were the very early ones to send the lambs to the slaughter. And this is truly a remarkable tragedy. But it's not more or less remarkable the tragedy that we have when the Pope decides to say that genetic modification of people is a, quote, gift from God. This is the same church that merely 20 years earlier issued a papal bull that said genetically modified nature is a violation of the divine order. And 20 years later, and a couple sheep that got a little weird, some of you got the joke, most of you didn't, but it'll come, it'll come, it'll come. 20 years after Dolly... Now we have the Pope telling us that genetically modified humans are a gift from God and setting the stage for the CRISPR technology, which will be the gene editing technology, which is actually the ultimate affront to everything that the church actually advocated for nearly a thousand years. That will be now put on the altar so that we can actually line the faithful up to edit out the genetics that we modified into the genetics, courtesy of the gift from God. You couldn't make this up. But what was the central problem? The central problem was belief, not observation of fact, critical thought, analysis, conversation, and action which is, in fact, what this gentleman encouraged all of us to pursue. So I feel that it's particularly interesting in light of that, that my presentation tonight, which was originally intended for Zurich, but here we are. We took a left when we should have gone right. I don't know. (laughs) Permanent neutrality in an era of biological weapons for hire. This is a conversation we should only have in Switzerland because Switzerland has a very unique role in the world and on the world stage where we should be having different conversations. And as a result of that, 
that's what our intent is tonight. Now, many of you are familiar with my presentations, and I have a moral obligation in every presentation to open my speeches with this quote. This is the admission, unambiguously, which states, without any equivocation, that the reason for the global terror campaign that began officially in the minds of most people in late 2019 was a premeditated plan of terrorism, collusion, coercion, and ultimately murder. And worse than all of the other facts that we'll talk about tonight is the criminals admitted to the crime in their own words. This quote is the admission of four felonies, regardless of which side of the Atlantic you're on, and let's go through it. To sustain the funding base beyond the crisis, we need to increase the public understanding for the need for medical countermeasures, such as a pan-influenza or a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Just there, we have the admission of two crimes. To increase the funding base. Did you hear that? Not to expand public health, not to help humanity. To increase the funding base beyond a crisis. This quote from 2015 was not on the eve of or in the wake of a crisis. So what's the crisis that we need to sustain the funding base beyond a crisis that's not there in 2014 and 2015? Well, the crisis was that there was a reduction in funding of biological weapons programs sponsored by the World Health Organization. The crisis was not a health crisis. It was a funding crisis for the people who actually were running out of money for their bioweapons programs. Oops. Those are two crimes. Now let's go on. A key driver is the media, and the economics will follow the hype. Another admission of two crimes. Let's start with hype. What's that? That's actually psychological terror. We're going to build a program. We're going to recite COVID count, COVID death, COVID count, COVID death, COVID count, COVID death. And we're going to get a mind control loop going. Oh, my God, there's a pandemic. We're going to use the media to create the hype. And the economics will follow the hype. Second crime. What's that? That's actually economic conspiracy because economics that follow hype is not informed consent. That's not willing buyer, willing seller informed of all the facts. That is an intent to defraud. Under crown law, we call it fraudulent conveyance. When you actually don't inform a counterparty of the risks associated with a contract, we have under crown law the principle of the, the notion of fraudulent conveyance. And why is this important? And by the way, I have yet to meet a lawyer in a room who's bothered to read the law in this one. The reason why fraudulent conveyance is such an important principle in the law is that the legal obligation, if someone engaged in fraud in contracting, 
is the fraud perpetrating party is required under the law to actually not just recompense the damage, but their legal obligation is to return the damaged party to their pre-damaged state. You hear that? It's not, we're going to give you a couple bucks for your pain and suffering. No. You are legally required to return the condition to the pre-damaged state. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a single lawyer on the planet who actually bothered to read fraudulent conveyance when they read this? Because what would be the consequence? The penalty is not we're going to find a financial you know, compensation scheme for the injured, which, by the way, is the high watermark we have in our society right now. We'll give you a couple bucks for your autism. We'll give you a couple bucks for your Bell's palsy. We'll give you a couple bucks for the dead child. We'll give you a couple bucks for the permanent disability. Right? That's our current high watermark. But that's not what the legal standard is for fraudulent conveyance. Fraudulent conveyance legal standard says return to its pre-damaged state. Ah, why don't we talk about this? Well, we don't talk about it because we're coward to talk about it. We have been cowed into submission to believe that somehow or another that's too much to ask for. That would be inconvenient. Really? How about myocarditis? That's inconvenient. How about very rapidly acting cancers? That's inconvenient. These are inconveniences, to be sure. But we're not even asking for what we should ask for. And we should ask for something because if we followed the law, we would actually recommend not a financial compensation. We would recommend a return to the pre-damaged state. By the way, I'm not making up the law. This is the law. And the reason why we don't have the remedy in front of our face is because we don't have the people who have the courage to stand up and ask for it. We haven't even had a judge rule on this. You know why? It's never been presented. It's kind of a bummer. We can't even lose. Because we don't even try. We don't even have the honor to fail with dignity. Which is staggering. By the way, I'll go through other slides faster, but this one's an important one. Because if you don't get what's being done in here, if you don't see the admission of all eight crimes, you haven't seen the crime. We need to use that hype to our advantage. Wow. To get to the real issue. And what's the real issue? Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. (laughs) Wow. So the pan-coronavirus vaccine program, which was publicly announced during the gain-of-function moratorium in the United States, and by virtue of the pause in the United States, all U.S.-affiliated programs worldwide, that gain-of-function moratorium was going on while we were announcing 
a global plan of global terrorism for a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Which, by the way, the World Health Organization, based here in Switzerland, <laughs> have I mentioned, declared eradicated a year earlier. How do we need a vaccine for an eradicated disease during a gain-of-function moratorium when there's theoretically no chance that we could have a reason to need a vaccine for a thing that doesn't exist? Well, because we were making it, Ralph Barrick, we were hyping it, Peter Daszak, he's the one who gave that quote, by the way, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, published in February 2015, and we were going to hijack liberty with it. Now, many of you have seen these slides, and I am not going to bore you with the details that exist in the speech I gave at the European Union Parliament on May of 2023. And if you haven't seen that, that's unfortunate because over half the world's total population has now not only downloaded it, but watched it. And the funniest thing about this is I was in a hotel in New York when a person came up to me and said, oh my God, you're David Martin. And I said, well, yes. And he, he said, you know, you're a TikTok influencer. <laughs> I didn't know I was a TikTok influencer. I know I have a very cute butt, but I didn't know I was a TikTok influencer. That was news to me. But according to TikTok, 800 million people have downloaded it on TikTok. 800 million. More than, I don't know, somebody who shakes their booty on TikTok. That's how many people like what I had to say. This is an amazing thing. But 4 billion people have seen that video. And what makes that video particularly important is these two slides. And what makes these two slides important is, first, the recognition that the isolation of what we have decided to call, and by the way, I'm going to be very precise in my language here, so you can try to misquote me later in a question, but you won't get there. The thing we decided to call coronavirus, we decided to call coronavirus in 1965. <laughs> Okay? Not 2003, not 2019, 1965. And by 1967, the United States and the UK actually began an exchange program where we were taking pathogens from the United States and injecting them or spewing them into healthy volunteers in the United Kingdom as part of our biological weapons program. So if anybody sits there and goes, whoa, whoa, Maybe it leaked from a lab. No, it didn't leak. The first thing that ever was done with the toxins associated with the coronavirus model was people in the U.S. took samples to the U.K. and infected healthy volunteers. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what a healthy volunteer is in the United States or in the United Kingdom, but I'm going to break some news to you. Healthy volunteers mean enlisted people in the military who do not have informed consent protection. We murdered people. But don't worry, it gets better. Because obviously we wouldn't want that to happen. 
in this beautiful paper that I wish everybody would read because I'm amazed at how many people think it's surprising that somehow or another that we have cardi uh, cardiac, you know, myocarditis and other cardiac events. In 1992, Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill figured out how to take a pathogen that used to infect the gut and used to infect the lungs and figured out how to alter it with a chimera so that it would infect the heart. Now, pause and think about what I just said. What manner of human being on earth would go, ah, it's giving you a little gastroenteritis, ah, it's giving you a little bit of a head cold, maybe a little bit of a sniffle. I wonder if we could modify it so it hit your heart. Think about this. What, what goes on in the head of a person who says, this was a little glitch in my tummy, it was a little sniffle in my nose, let's see if we can make it hit hearts. And not just hit hearts, but create cardiomyopathy. One of the most lethal heart inflammations possible. Which really has a beautiful, usual mortality end. Where your heart ruptures. Isn't that beautiful? A lovely thought. We're going to see if we can do something that would create a condition in which the likely outcome is the rupturing of a heart. And that was 1992. It gets better. Pfizer decides to patent their first spike protein vaccine in November of 2000. Operation Warp Speed. If by warp speed we mean maple syrup running in, I don't know, the top of the Alps in February. That's how fast this is. From November of 2000 until 2019. That's how fast we went with a spike protein vaccine. Or maybe we should go back and look and see what happened in those trials to find out that when we tried to create vaccines for coronavirus, you know what we did? We killed the animals that we put the vaccines into. Which would explain why the University of California, San Francisco's Institutional Review Board in the summer of 2020 was told that the coronavirus vaccine clinical trials was a straight-to-humans protocol. That's a quote. Despite the fact that every single trial from November of 2000 until then had killed all of the animals into which the experimental injections were placed. So that would be a great reason to say, let's do a straight-to-humans protocol, because we wouldn't want the inconvenience of having safety data that would suggest that it kills animals. I'm glad that there's a pause here. You, you kind of can't make this egregious level of a crime up unless you realize that behind this, there must be another crime. Because each one of these in and of themselves, is horrific. But the sum of them becomes much, much, much more problematic. And let's go ahead and jump to 
the wonderful creation of the patent that was filed in 2002, which is actually the reason why I am done with everybody who asks the question, was there a novel virus? Was there a novel disease? Let's stipulate with the facts that there were neither. There's not a novel virus. There was a variety of biological weapons designed off of the back of the patent that was filed in 2002, which was the infectious replication defective clone of coronavirus. Now, let's slow down and answer the question, what does that phrase mean? Infectious replication defective. Infectious means we want to target a cell in the body to make sure the thing that we're injecting goes into the cell. That's what infectious means. Replication defective means we want the information that we inject to infect that cell, but not replicate and spread to others. Which means that the bioweapon itself was engineered as a weapon to hit a target, but not proliferate. That's what the patented technology is. Which is the reason why when we had SARS 1.0 in 2002 and 2003, the world was all supposed to die. Remember that? We were going to have dead people everywhere. And as hard as we tried to make it into a pandemic, as hard as we tried, we could only kick 900 people off the mountain. And that was the global pandemic. Why? Because the weapon worked. If you expose somebody to the toxic agent, they died. But they didn't spread it to others. Which is the reason why we did not have the transmission of SARS 1.0. Because you can't transmit a thing that's designed not to replicate. But worse still, what is the definition of a virus if you subscribe to the definition of a virus? A virus is a replicating protein sequence. <gasps> Guess what this isn't? Replication defective means we took the virus out of a virus. It was not a replicating device. It was, in fact, a weapon. Now, I've got tons of people who go, Dave, you're crossing a line. Don't say it's a weapon. It's not a weapon. You can't call it a weapon. You offend people who kill people when you call it a weapon. <laughs> well, guess what? If you're offended, I don't care. Because I didn't call it a weapon. The guy who built it called it a weapon. And not kind of. In 2005, the MRA spike protein was actually heralded in a conference hosted by DARPA and by MITRE in the United States as, and are you ready for this? Synthetic coronavirus is biohacking. And now, are you ready for this? Biological warfare enabling technology. Let's see, I wonder what that could mean. Let's, 
Let's think of all the things that could mean. Biological warfare enabling technology sounds like public health for accidental releases, doesn't it? No. When you say biological warfare enabling technology, you know what you're saying it is? A biological warfare agent. I'm not the one saying that it's biological weapons. I'm not the one saying it's biological warfare. The perpetrator called it that in 2005 and was rewarded with a dual entry budget where the budget that went to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill received money from Anthony Fauci's NIAID NIH budget and exactly at the same time each one of those checks was written. Are you ready for this? Anthony Fauci had a second checkbook. And that second checkbook came from the Department of Defense Pandemic Preparedness Program. And guess what that was? An equal matching non-competition grant. Non-competition grant. Now, there's two people in the room that might understand what I'm about to say. But that's, in, the, in Europe, a violation of anti-competition laws. You're not allowed to double down on a public grant without any competition or transparency saying that this agency is going to give you $10 million over here and this one's going to give you $10 million over here. Why? Because this one gave you $10 million. Not because it was fair, not because it was open, not because it was transparent, not because there was actually grant competition. It's by virtue of the determination of one side, the other side de facto matched the money. And that started in 2005, not in 2019. And so you've heard things like, oh, Peter Daszak, EcoHealth Alliance, 2015, did the thing in China. Yeah, with the $3.4 million that he took. But conveniently, you're not told of the over $141 million, which is slightly more than $3.4 million. You're not told of the $140 million that went into the bioweapons program at the universities led by University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Why do I care about this? Why should we care about this? I'm amazed at how many people try to figure out this crime. They, clearly, governments wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> Clear, clearly, the World Health Organization is all about health, isn't it? Clearly, these are, these are good people. They were misguided, but good people. No, they're not. They are criminals intent to kill humanity. And I have the audacity to stand in front of you tonight and say, if a criminal is intending to kill humanity, I, for one, feel like a human being ought to point that out. Not sit there and go, well, maybe, Dave, but... Really, aren't you being a little harsh? A little harsh? I'm being a little harsh when I say that a person who got rewarded financially for doing biological weapon creation with synthetic coronavirus models, which actually were promulgated around the world and experimented on in killing people, I'm a little harsh when I say that's a problem? I don't think so. And I'm ready for all of us to get comfortable with saying that. 
If somebody's killing human beings, we shouldn't be trying to be politically correct. <laughs> they do not identify as murderers. <laughs> Few of you got the joke. If you're in America, that's a knockdown. Everybody's rolling in the <laughs> everybody's rolling in the aisles. <laughs> now, I have been the most ardent advocate for shaming the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill for a very good reason. Most people don't know why. So I'm going to give you the tar on their heels. That's Tar Heels are the name of North Carolina. Blood on their hands. I'm going to give you the reason why I have such an absolute aversion to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And the reason is because in 1984, the state of North Carolina, not just the university, but the state of North Carolina sold itself to the welcome businesses, GlaxoSmithKline, and the whole welcome companies. The reason why you've heard the term maybe Research Triangle Institute or Research Triangle Park, which is University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Duke University, and North Carolina State University. The reason why you've heard of the Research Triangle is because the state of North Carolina sold its universities to GlaxoSmithKline Welcome. And they did it because of AZT. AZT was on patent, and we needed a state in the United States to be ground zero to make sure that AZT became the drug of choice for the treatment of HIV. So in 1984, we invent HIV conveniently for the purpose of making sure we have one treatment, AZT. Here's the interesting little fact that very few people know, but if you go back and look at the videos of Anthony Fauci in 1985 and 1986, what you'll find is he's talking about maybe we should get a vaccine for HIV. But he suddenly got a knock on the door from GlaxoSmithKline going, hey, Mr. Fauci, don't start that project until the patent on AZT runs out. I'm not making this up. It's actually videos that you can see. And so mysteriously, courtesy of the Welcome AZT protest, from 1991 to 1996, the world was told that the only treatment for HIV was AZT, and as such, the patent and the rest of the patent life on AZT could expire so that GlaxoSmithKline Welcome could get all of the money for the patented technology for a thing that was killing patients that allegedly had HIV. Murder for hire. And the state of North Carolina sold the state so that that could happen. Conveniently, NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, decided that UNC Chapel Hill was its go-to institution while AZT was in its monopoly run to actually begin the process of doing HIV vaccine research, which is the reason why Ralph Barrick in 1992, and you'll note the date, right? So 91 to 96 is the AZT cover story, and underneath that you have Ralph Barrick genetically modifying and making chimeras of this coronavirus thing to create an HIV vaccine, which is going to conveniently roll out in 1997 
as the patent on AZT expires, which is the reason why you need to figure out how to get the gastrointestinal and flu problem to become a heart problem. Because you need to actually get that package, that little envelope around what we call coronavirus, you need to get the envelope to deliver the HIV vaccine. So all of the funding for the HIV vaccine that was going to this program was actually going to use coronavirus as the packet in which the HIV vaccine was going to be delivered. That's the model. By the way, hundreds of papers on this. And this is why this question of in the recent injections, is there HIV fragments somewhere in any of this stuff? The answer is, of course there is. It was designed into it. And it was designed into it not a couple years ago, not by Moderna, not by BioNTech. This was designed in many, many years earlier. And not surprisingly, from 96 to 99, Ralph Barrick begins the weaponization of this allegedly synthetic coronavirus envelope to become a vaccine vector. 1999 comes along, and lo and behold, Barrick and Fauci create what I affectionately call Franken-CoEV. What's that? That is the monster. That's the chimera. That's the idea that we can change surface um, glycans. We can change surface spike proteins. We can change surface oligomerization. We can do all kinds of things to modify this thing so we can actually have this thing, the packet shell, which we called the outer edge of coronavirus, we can allow that to be the carrier of getting anything we want into any cell we want. Which is the reason why the 2002 patent becomes interesting. Now, put a pin in that, because we're going to come back to the 2002 patent, because there's a mystery in that patent. It's filed in 2002, 2002, which means it should have expired in 2022. You know what people with patents don't like? Mm. Not to make money on the thing that they patented before the patent runs out. Just hold that thought. I'm not saying that they did. I'm not saying bad people did bad things, because that would make me judgy. <laughs> but I am wondering if I had a patent on a thing that I thought was valuable, would it be nice to have a reason for that thing's value to be visible before the patent expires? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> now, this is a terrible projector on a terrible screen with a terribly structured slide. So I'm going to go ahead and jump up on the stage so that you can see what I'm pointing to. But this is the letter that was sent to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill on October the 21st, 2014. This is the letter that was sent. If anybody remembers, 2014 gain-of-function moratorium in the fall of 2014, and, and we've heard Anthony Fauci say, well, we never funded gain-of-function research. So it's quite problematic when you see that this letter came from the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Bethesda, Maryland, which sounds like NIAID. Why? Because it is NIAID. That's why it sounds like it their letterhead to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Dear Ms. Settle, NIAID has determined that the above reference grant, and that's AI 1077810-02, has determined that that research grant is subject to the gain-of-function moratorium. But Fauci says they never funded it. 
But on October the 21st, 2014, they said Ralph Barrick's research was a gain-of-function project. Well, did you fund it? Did you not? Let's read on, shall we? Role of uncharacterized genes in high pathogenic human coronavirus infection. Wow, that sounds like probably, I don't know, gain-of-function research. And then the research is to see if we can have novel functions of viral replication in vitro, which means can we get it to reproduce itself in a Petri dish? And I'm being crass there. Virologists out there are going to go, not a Petri dish. You're right. But the second line is the one that's the damning evidence. The second line of that statement was not in the original grant. And that was viral modification to see if we can increase human pathogenesis in vivo. Not only did we say you could keep doing the gain-of-function research, we changed the research to include seeing if you could increase pathogenesis in humans in vivo. Does anybody have a tiny problem with what is on that letter? No. And does anybody else have a tiny problem that not a single elected or appointed representative of any government agency anywhere on this planet has ever put that letter into the public. Why wouldn't they do that? <laughs> that would be really bad marketing, wouldn't it? It would be very bad marketing. But you say, but Dave, did they really say that they could keep doing the gain-of-function research? Well, why don't I go ahead and inconveniently read this very small print right here at the bottom of this paragraph on the first page of the letter, so you don't even have to read the whole letter. As your grant is currently funded, this pause is voluntary. <laughs> See, you almost have to laugh until you realize that two billion human beings are going to be incapacitated or killed because of this letter. Two billion people will be incapacitated or killed because of this letter. And then it's not funny anymore. And let's get the last little punchline, because this feeds into that opening quote that I showed you. Because remember, the opening quote was to sustain the funding. Remember, that's what we were doing. We we're sustaining funding. As this grant is already funded, the pause is voluntary, and you can continue to conduct the applicable GOF, gain of function, research until the end of the currently active budget period. At which point all of you should say, well, what was the currently active budget period in this grant? Well, you ready for this? It didn't have a termination date. <laughs> it was a non-competitive, perpetually funded grant.
So maybe we'll just tidy this thing up. We'll just wrap it up. We'll all be done, and we'll go home for Christmas. No. Worse than this, what will happen? What will happen is this little group comes along and says, hey, the World Health Organization is a really cool way to get legal immunity from things where the crime that I'm doing cannot be investigated or prosecuted. That's Article 13 of the Charter of the World Health Organization. Did you hear me? You cannot be investigated or prosecuted under Article 13 of the Charter. So wouldn't it be interesting, if we know that we have a biological weapon, wouldn't it be cool to start a vaccine development program under the World Health Organization's GAVI, under the World Health Organization's Charter, because what happens if, God forbid, a bald guy from Virginia ever convinces the world to say we should hold some people accountable. Well, who is going to be held accountable? Ah, they actually knew that if they put the project under the who, it was shielded from all criminal investigation and all criminal liability forever. Because that's the charter that we all signed in the 1940s. We all agreed to that, remember? <laughs> remember, we all agreed that it would be a good idea. It would be a good idea to take an institution funded by a pharmaceutical company. It would be a really good idea if we took an institution funded by a pharmaceutical company to write a law that says that any actions taken by that organization funded by a pharmaceutical company can never be criminally prosecuted ever in any jurisdiction. You mean, oh, whoa, 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 hold on a second. So you're saying that if a criminal could write a law that says, here are the crimes I'm going to commit, but I'm going to go ahead and write a law that says none of my crimes can ever be prosecuted, nothing wrong could go into that story, right? Nothing bad could happen from that. It gets far worse. What did they do? They actually made sure that despite the fact that by that time, in 2011, we had the Global Vaccine Action Plan, we had a 10-year goal that said that between 2010 and 2020, the world would accept a universal influenza or coronavirus vaccine. <gasps> For a disease that we said was eradicated. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We would actually have, and their words, not mine, an accidental or intentional release of a respiratory pathogen. What's wrong with that phrase? An accidental or intentional release? Does that sound like somebody spilled something in their coffee in the lab? No. Release is an active, intent-filled word. It is not an oops accident. This is not a bat and a pangolin went into a bar in Wuhan, got it on one night, and boop, out came baby COVID. <laughs> Which is a story you're supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe that story. And that completes this part of our program.
Whenever time allows, I will have part two of David Martin on my noon show. Thank you all. Share this information, please. Look, we don't have advertising, and Google, Facebook, all these things have algorithms, and they don't allow any of us who are sharing uh, challenges to the Orthodox view to have any, any awareness on the Internet. So you be the, you be the cipher. Take this information and provide it to other people. Have a nice day, everyone. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you die.